Hey, Leading Learning listener, if you represent a membership organization looking for ways to expand your online course catalog rapidly with high quality content, we have good news. At leadinglearning.com AMA, you can find out how to make online training from the American Management Association available to your learners. Through a partnership between AMA and Tagoras, the parent company of Leading Learning, you can give your learners access to more than 70 e-learning modules covering essential business topics ranging from leading and innovating, to managing projects effectively, to working in hybrid teams. For details on how to grow your catalog with courses from a true global leader in management training, visit leadinglearning.com AMA. If you're a leader, or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to episode 104 of the Leading Learning Podcast. We've lined up what I think is sure to be one of our most popular episodes. Namely, we'll be talking with Dr. Barbara Oakley. Barb is a professor of engineering at Oakland University in Rochester, Michigan, and she's the author of multiple books. But arguably, what she's best known for is being the creator of a hugely popular, massive, open online course, or MOOC. And we'll dig into details about all of that. But first, I want to highlight a resource that relates directly to this episode. We have, as it happens, compiled a web page that focuses specifically on massive open online courses and provides information that's useful for anyone considering using MOOCs in a professional development context. You can get a link to that resource page by going to the show notes for this episode at leadinglearning.com slash episode 104. Or if you're subscribed to the podcast through iTunes, you'll see that link right there in the show information in iTunes, a link directly to the webpage with the MOOC resources. And really, that's just one of the many benefits of actually subscribing to the Leading Learning Podcast. Now, Salisa, you did the honors this time around. What are, what are some highlights from your conversation? Well, as you already hinted at, Jeff, Barb is multi-talented. She's an author, a, a teacher, um, and a professor of engineering, as you said, behind at least two MOOCs. She's a speaker. And in fact, when I first reached out to her about an interview, we had to defer a bit because she was headed into a season of heavy travel, largely related to speaking. And then perhaps most importantly, she's a lifelong learner herself. So Barb and I talked about the Learning How to Learn MOOC on Coursera. That's been taken by about 2 million people at this point, um, probably more because folks keep signing up. Um, Learning How to Learn is also the title of a new book that she's working on due out in August 2018. And it's going to focus on really from 10-year-old and up to adult uh, about practical tips on how to learn better and uh, complement that with the research and the science that underpin those tips for learning better. We also talked about MindShift, which is currently Barb's latest book, um, and it deals with learning and change um, that lie behind really big shifts in life, so things like career changes. Um, We also got into the changed learning landscape and the impact of things like artificial intelligence on the entrepreneurial subject matter expert. All really interesting stuff. Um, Barb is really passionate about learning. Um, uh, She talks about creating materials with a heart, and you can definitely get that sense that she really does her heart into her work. Um, We get into learning new things and career shifts. That's been part of her personal and professional life. So she was really a lot of fun to talk to, fun and thoughtful. So really a great combination. 
Well, I'm looking forward to this, but I have to say my my brain is sort of stuck back there where you said two million. It, I'm, I'm fascinated. I'm amazed, and I have to say it, it kind of warms my heart to know that there are you know more than two million people out there interested in learning about learning. And I, I know Barb is fascinating in talking about it. I've heard her interviewed by uh, Nasos Papadopoulos on uh, MetaLearn, and we'll, uh, we'll link to that. And as you've noted, she speaks frequently. She's really compelling as a speaker, and certainly you know, we know we have a lot of people listening to the show who are looking for great speakers. Barb is definitely somebody to look into for that. In the meantime, let's tune into this great conversation that you had with Dr. Barbara Oakley. Hello out there, I'm Salisa Steele, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Dr. Barbara Oakley. Barb is a professor of engineering at Oakland University in Rochester, Michigan, and a distinguished scholar of global digital learning at McMaster University in Ontario. She's an accomplished speaker, and in fact, when I uh, first reached out to her about this interview, she uh, had to defer a little bit because she was heading into some heavy travel for speaking. She's also the author of many books, including A Mind for Numbers and most recently, Mind Shift. And she has a new book coming out in 2018 called Learning How to Learn. And yes, that's the same name as the wildly popular massive open online course that she co-created. That MOOC, Learning How to Learn, has been taken by... 2 million students from over 200 countries, and um, that makes it the most uh, popular course on Coursera and arguably in the world. So, Barb, thanks so much for making time for the Leading Learning Podcast. Oh, Salisa, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. And so I uh, condensed all of your work and your many accomplishments down to just a few sentences and seconds. And so I want to start off by giving you the chance to say a little bit more about yourself, about your background and, and your interests. Oh, well, I originally was a, uh, a linguist. I was trained as a Russian linguist in the army. I had no Slavic background or anything, but I got out of the army and realized that uh, nobody was pounding on my door to uh, to recruit me. So I decided against all odds to try and retrain myself to be more technical, even though I'd always hated math and science before. And lo and behold, I am now a professor of engineering. So, so I'm fascinated by learning, by the neuroscience of learning, and how uh, wildly different disciplines have an uh, underpinning that uh, you know that is united by how our brain works and learning how our brain works and so that's that's been my fascination and i am fascinated by online learning materials as you you might gather after the the surprise of uh, the success of learning how to learn and my second mooc which is mind shift both of which i've done with Terence Sanowski, the Francis Crick professor at the Salk Institute. So it's a, it's a fun journey, and there's even more fun stuff ahead. Yes, I have no doubt. And, um, you know, as we've talked about that, learning how to learn MOOC has been hugely popular. Um, you know, two million people have taken it. And, um, and I know that in, in MindShift, the, the recent book, you devote a chapter to talking about the, the MOOC-making experience, and you share that it, it wasn't terribly expensive to make that MOOC. Uh, I think you say under $5,000. I know you personally edited a lot of the video. 
it sounds like you were somewhat surprised by the popularity of the course. So, you know, to, to what do you ascribe its popularity? Oh, good question. Um, well, just by way of background, so I was invited to speak at Harvard, and of course I'm a little bit intimidated. It's Harvard, you know, and I walked in, and the room was absolutely packed, standing room only, all around the edges, and I thought, why on earth is there so much interest? And it, I think, at least in part, it was because the one this one little course that was made for less than $5,000, mostly in my basement, uh, actually had on the order of the same number of students as all of Harvard's online courses and MOOCs put together, made for millions of dollars with hundreds of people. And so I think that that tells you something very important, that that if you use innovative new methods for reaching out to learners with practical, uh, well-grounded in research uh, online materials, they go nuts for them. They mm. love them. And so, uh, so it's sort of my mission now is to help people learn about learning and how to uh, create better online materials, which is really uh, something we're, we're all capable of doing. Well, yes. I mean, you mentioned in the the MOOC making chapter in in MindShift that you know pretty much anyone nowadays can produce good looking instructional videos. Um, and I know one of the trends that my colleague Jeff Cobb and I here at Tagore's have noted is the rise of what we call the ESME or the Entrepreneurial Subject Matter Expert. Um, and because the tools and technologies have gotten simpler and cheaper. It's easier than ever for subject matter experts, you know, with that entrepreneurial bent to put out their own educational content. They don't necessarily need uh, an association to um, help them produce it or even to help them market it. So I'm wondering if, you know, because you clearly are an entrepreneurial subject matter expert yourself, you know, do you have advice for organizations like associations that rely on experts? You know, how can these organizations provide value to experts so that they uh, remain relevant and helpful to those experts? I think there's several ways to do that, uh, particularly with online learning materials. It's, it's not necessarily obvious to the subject matter expert about how to get those materials out there to the public. And, and at the same time, um, really good well-made online materials can be an enhancement for whatever institution is using them. I mean, like a major enhancement. So I think one of the most important things uh, that any um, institution can provide is is a good, easy-to-use framework that some that a subject matter expert can put their materials easily online with. So for me, uh, I use Coursera. I've been very happy with uh, the platform they provided. In some ways, it was a sort of a turnkey system. So I think there there's a growing movement. Um, you know, certain online providers, you know, such as Coursera, are understandably um, restrictive in who they uh, want to accommodate as far as the institutions they will work with. So what this means is that other institutions can um, create their own. 
um, online courses uh, and platforms. For example, the Santa Fe Institute, uh, you know, and of course there's uh, platforms such as Udemy uh, and so forth where one can put online materials on very easily. But I think that there's a growing need for uh, simple platforms that um, – that institutions can use to easily house and accommodate um, online ex or experts or, or uh, you know subject matter experts, and that could be a big thing that that they can do to you know, to help make their materials available for everyone, and that enhances both the expert and the institution that's related with that or affiliated with that expert. Mm-hmm. Right, so definitely the the boon to both that expert and to the organization providing that platform. Platform, yeah, Udemy is definitely one of the platforms you know we've been tracking, and in some ways, again, it's kind of potentially providing that role that the association can. But I think to your point, you know, if you can really kind of provide a, a framework and, and make something as um, kind of. Uh, uh, provide um, a, a template for, for subject matter experts to use that that can be really valuable. Yes. And also, uh, I think an important thing is that it, any kind of presentations need to be a two-way street. They enhance both the institution and the subject matter expert. And so, uh, if the institution develops their own um, provider um, facility, their 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 own um, basic courseware that that the experts can put their materials on, uh, it you know it does serve as a way to help enhance that institution itself. And of course, that means that revenues that come in from um, online materials uh, can go more directly to the institution instead of, you know, some of the cut going to what other, whatever other provider you may also be going through. And, and I am here to tell you that the revenues that come in from some of these courses can be substantial. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially as you get into millions of, of users and, and, you know, that broad appeal, the massive of, of the MOOCs there. Um, you know, one of the points that you've made is that we collectively as a as a society are often not prepared to be learners and and that you know we're expected to learn things but we're also expected to know how to learn those things um and so if you think about organizations that provide education and learning as do most professional and trade associations how do you think they can help adult learners those that they serve um, become better learners. Um, is is there uh, any specific examples you might have about what that might look like in the context of you know a multi day conference or or an online course, for example? One of the big mistakes I think that we make with relation to learning is that we overlook the most obviously important things to help learners. So, for example, if we're trying to get people to learn better. We might talk about things like uh, deliberate practice, which means sort of focusing on the hard materials, or uh, interleaving, which means alternating different intellectual tools that you might have. But we forget about, you know, like the first thing is 
learners procrastinate. <laughs> so, you know, so how, how do you get them to be more effective if they're learning online, for example, taking an online course? I think uh, a good thing for institutions to do would be to, um, to give a sort of preliminary, um, well, I mean, learning how to learn is, it, it has substantive revenues, but at the same time, it's also available for free. Mm. And so, you know, if you have some learners look at these materials, which are free, they'll learn about things like, uh, how, how do you not procrastinate? Um, when you first look at something and you can't figure it out, does that mean you're stupid? Mm. You know, of course you say no, but what's going on neuroscientifically that actually proves that you are still quite intelligent. And how can you grapple with that? Uh, this course, it, it just deals really quickly, effectively, and in a humorous way with these kinds of things. So I think introducing le uh, learners to basic ideas about learning, that's something that we, we haven't been used to, just as you say. Uh, and we also haven't, I mean, can you imagine that most people go through 12 to 16 years of educational institutions and they never get a course on how to learn effectively. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just like it's, learn all this stuff, but we're not going to teach you how to do it. Right. So when I'm teaching, for example, um, probability and statistics for engineers, I mean, it's, it's amazing how easy it is to take for granted that students know they should actively solve a problem when they actually don't, they think if they just look at it, the, magically their little dendritic spines will begin to grow. Uh, and of course, that's not true. So I think teaching students are about learning. And even in conferences, you can have um, sort of a, uh, a keynote of sorts that um, that gives a common uh way of talking about important aspects of learning, which I, I don't care what kind of of institution or, or corporation that you're involved with, whether it's uh, this is, we're, we're teaching about animal husbandry or we're, we've got, um, we're, we're affiliated with Coca-Cola, whatever you've got, learning is a big part of what's going on in that corporation. And so I think that if you have something um, in your conferences that talks, gives a common vocabulary for important aspects of learning, for example, the idea of chunking of creating neural networks that are compact that you can easily draw to mind. All of these kinds of ideas are important and people just don't know about them. But what the, once they know about them, they're powerful tools. And of course, that's why the, the MOOC, uh, Learning How to Learn, is so wildly popular. So I'm hearing at least, you know, a couple of ideas. I mean, one is that there can just be a real focus on, you know, using some of the materials out there like the, the MOOC Learning How to Learn to make sure that, that folks uh, understand how to learn. Um, and that could be kind of a, you know, pre-work or a way to set things up, but then also in the context of a learning experience, helping to uh, return to those ideas, to return to that common vocabulary if you've set it up uh, either in some 
pre-work or doing a keynote and, and kind of baking it into all of the education. So I think that's that's great. It needs to be repeated, as we know. So we need to learn the learn how to learn and then keep uh, reminding ourselves how to learn how to learn. That's exactly right. And I think that's particularly important because everything is changing so rapidly now with artificial intelligence and the inroads it's making on on white collar sorts of jobs. And so uh, uh, the ability to be quick on your feet with learning new ideas is 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 ra- it's never been more important. So I think that the more, focus you put on smart learning, um, not just sort of the typical old-fashioned academic approach of, well, I'm going to teach you about learning, so let's have two weeks on history of education, and then two more weeks on how babies learn, two more weeks on theories of education, you know, all of that kind of thing. People want practical insight, what's going on based on neuroscience and how can you leverage that to learn more quickly now? And we've got that information because research is giving it to us. Right. That's great. That's a good point in terms of uh, we have so much more information as the field of neuroscience has grown up. We can really see what's happening in the brain. I, you know, And I think part of what you're starting to talk about here is is what... Mind shift, the the your latest book and and the new MOOC talk about, um, and so you define a mind shift as a deep change in life that occurs thanks to learning, and and maybe you've begun to hint at it, but I would love to hear you talk a little bit about what led you to focus on deep changes um, that happen thanks to learning, and and with that emphasis on kind of career changes that um, can can happen in in life. I think one of the most important trends in modern society today is the importance and value of having some sort of technical expertise or insight. You don't need to be a super coder or anything like that, but just a little bit of uh, comfort and knowledge of technology and analytical skills can be of real value no matter what career you choose. The, the thing is, we're in a period of transition, and many uh, many individuals have grown up under that idea of follow your passion. And, of course, passions develop about what you're good at, and some things are much easier for some people to get good at. So, they can end up sort of slotting themselves on the side, as I did, with learning something like Russian, which has a very limited appeal in the job market. So, uh, I I see this everywhere. Um, The people are retraining themselves or they're looking longingly at, at, they want to retrain themselves, but they're they're not sure they can do it. And so mind shift uh, the the book and actually the whole MOOC learning how to learn and uh, the book of mind for numbers is basically to help people uh, realize that not only that can they make big changes and learn something they thought they could never learn, but here's the practical, here's how you do mm-hmm. it. And uh, so, uh, and I think that's just a, a very, very important and helpful uh, set of tools for people to learn about uh, in today's rapidly changing society. 
Yeah, I think that's um, very true. And I, like you said, I love the the very practical um, focus that you emphasize in in all your work around, um, you know, not so much the theory, but the the application of, of these ideas and how it plays out. And I know that's that, right. And, go ahead. I'm sorry if you were going to say something. Oh, it's, I, I think that that's an important point. Is that people really like the practical aspect. But people are smart, and they also love it if you can give them something practical and then say, and here's the neuroscience Mm. that says why. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you can tell anybody, yeah, sure, you need lots of sleep, right? That sleep every night is important. Well, they're still going to ignore you and, and short their sleep if they are running short on deadlines and so forth. But they don't know things like when you go to sleep, your brain cells shrink, and that allows neurotoxins that have developed during the day to be washed away. So that's why you're refreshed when you have a good sleep. But more than that, when you go to sleep, that's when the dendritic spines begin to grow. Um, So if you've learned something during the day and then you go to sleep on it, that's that's when the neural architecture develops. So the more you learn a bit every day – the stronger your neural architecture. If you just cram, you've got a weak structure of learning and it will rapidly fade fade away. So when people learn things like this, it it means so much more to them than just, oh, you should get a good sleep at night. No, I think you're right. It might be the, um, at least in me, the inherent uh, skeptic. I want to know why you tell me to get a good night's uh, sleep or, or whatever the advice is. So I think you make a good point about you want the advice and you want the the uh, research and the data and the science that backs that up. Yeah, I think so. And so, you know, one of the themes that I noticed in MindShift is, is this idea that our past knowledge and uh, experience uh, very often, maybe even always, uh, wind up being helpful in our um, present, even if our past is very different from our present. And I know you cite many examples because one of the great things you do in, in MindShift the book is is um, share different people's stories. So, you know, there's the woman with her online gaming hobby who uh, eventually becomes a, uh, you know, translates into a full-time job for her managing online community for MOOCs at a university. And then there's the musician turned doctor who can apply those listening skills he learned from music to listening to a patient. So, I would love for you to talk a little bit about how the past can be leveraged to support change rather than confining us to um, continuing the same path um, that, that maybe we started down. Oh, that's that's such a, a lovely question that leaves uh, so many room, so much room for a lot of different answers. One thing is that, well, someone told me once that they said, whatever you might learn about, you will be surprised that it will come in handy someday. And, and I thought, no, come on now. And I have been struck over the decades at how often that comes true. I mean, even if I look at things like, you learn Russian, okay, well, When's that going to come in handy if you're, you know, trying to study in math and science? Well, it turns out that my learning Russian actually taught me 
a very important metacognitive skill about how do you chunk data? How do you create neural structures that you can call on uh, and quickly put into use? And when I took the same sort of learning techniques that that had that they had used at the Defense Language Institute to teach me Russian, and I applied those same techniques to learning math and science. It worked. Mm. It, 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 that actually was the key um, to helping me break through and learn effectively in math and science. Was it everything? No. I, I, I you know, if I know that, known then what I know now, I could have been even more effective as a learner. But so often we'll learn if you learn something well. There's all sorts of ways that it can help you in another area, uh, and. And this is why it's important, I believe, for us to remain open and flexible in our learning. And what I mean by this is, let's say that you you are that your work involves investing, and you want to help investors do really well. So you try to read every book on investing. You're an expert on investing, right? That's that's your focus. Well, guess what? Every other expert on investing is going to be reading exactly the Mm -hmm. same books. Mm -hmm. And so you can't be – it's harder for you to be creative in in what you're looking at. And more than that, you can get kind of stuck into what's called Einstellung um, or functional fixedness, which means that you get used to one way of looking at things and you can't sort of jump out of that and see in fresh ways. So a good way to uh, prevent that from happening is is take a little bit of time. Doesn't need to be a lot, but just a little bit of your your time and start learning something completely different. I don't care what it is, whether it's Finnish or you're learning about Japanese manga or you name it. Whatever it is, as long as it's really different, uh, what that'll do is that will help build creativity, like flexibility in your thinking, because you're thinking about something very different. But also, through metaphor, you can bring ideas from this other area into your your fundamental area and be more creative. This relates to an idea or a theory called neural reuse theory, which is that once you create a certain sort of pattern in your brain involving one skill uh, or one subject area, you can more easily transfer that pattern and use it in a completely different area and the it, it can work, but you only can do this if you like try to do something. You know, always keep your your brain a little fresh by learning something different, something new. Yeah, I love that idea too because I think uh, you know at, at the um, broader sort of business strategy level. I mean, it's like if you're doing what everybody else is doing, then you're you're sort of competing on the same factors. If you're um, keeping uh, your your learning open and flexible, then that's going to you know just by virtue of whatever you're learning, bring in different aspects that other competitors wouldn't necessarily um, be thinking about. So it seems like it's going to 
certainly lead to the tendency for there to be some distinguishing characteristics of, of your business or your learning and that you're offering out um, to, to, to emerge. So I, I really like that idea. Bingo. You, I think you've summarized it better than I did. <laughs> well, one of the things that I thought was really a, a nice move, I certainly appreciate it, is at the end of uh, the book, MindShift, you make a suggestion, maybe even kind of a, a challenge to, to readers, um, that we don't just settle for uh, making our own mind shift, which would be arguably uh, enough of an accomplishment, but that you suggest that we also try to share the beauty and joy of learning with others. And I'm thinking again of, of associations that are focused on learning, where education and professional development uh, that they offer are, are such a key part of the value that they uh, exposed to members and others. Uh, so I was wondering if you have any thoughts about how such organizations might go about sharing and instilling this idea of learning and, and mind shifts as, as joyful, beautiful things in, in those that they serve. Uh, another great question. Well, I think, so one thing for me is that I I had never at all been involved in anything to do with video or photography if you before I did the the massive open online course so basically if you stuck a camera in my hand and pointed me towards where the 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 button was I could take a picture that was the <laughs> long and the short of my expertise so um so I when it came to doing the doing the videos for the uh, MOOC, uh, I began, I, I just did almost all the editing myself. And part of it was I wasn't part of a massive uh, university organization that was uh, bankrolling all of this. And, and actually, as I've come to discover, there are major university systems that have put, for example, $2 million into creating, say, eight MOOCs, and they've had 300 students over mm. a couple of years and then had it fail. And so uh, I've come to realize that creating online materials that have a heart that aren't just like a typical, um, you know, we're just putting it out, we're throwing it out there. Uh, yeah, here's a montage. Uh, now we have the talking head here, and then we have a couple pictures here. But actually taking account of the fact that editing is this beautiful, creative process that adds so much to the materials, I think it's it's easy for uh, for institutions to forget how creative and beautiful the the materials they they are putting forth for you know, for their learners can can be it's it's a truly artistic process and so I think behind it all you, I mean you could talk about lots of just sort of um, you know practical things that you could do but I think underlying uh, if you have an approach of we're creating beautiful materials that are really going to help people, it 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 turns into something that's different and it's more magical. Mm, that's great, and I I think it's right. It's very clear that your passion for for what you share and for this just idea of trying to really improve across the board how people learn, um, that, that definitely comes through in, in the materials that, that you've put out there, whether in book form or in MOOC form or in other venues. 
So uh, we'll switch gears a little bit. I'm kind of pick up from um, you know what you've been dealing with directly, and I'm just curious to to get your take on you know in terms of what's going on in learning these days. What excites you the most, um, and and maybe related to that, um, what topic or, or phenomenon do you want to learn more about? Oh, okay. Well, the the, the big project I'm working on now is. I mean, it just absolutely amazes me that there are no good materials for kids out there on how to learn effectively. Mm. So a lot of the the ideas that I share are about how to learn effectively are not only like super powerful, but they're 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 easy to understand. They're so simple that kids can understand them easily. And imagine the leveraging effect of you know, teaching kids when they're 10 years old as opposed to when they're 20 mm. about about how you can learn effectively and that, hey, if you don't like math to start with, guess what? You know, you here's some tricks that can help you. It can open great new career doors for especially for for the disadvantaged. And so yeah, I think that's a uh, what I'm working on now is developing a curriculum, uh, a, a book for kids that'll be coming out in, um, let's see, August of 2018, called "Learning How to Learn," and but also a, a whole a parent teacher workbook, mm. uh, how to use these materials. And of uh, course, a big part of it is humor. Uh-huh. <laughs> gotta have a, gotta have some fun in there. So there's lots of like fun. Um, so there's great neuroscience, but there's also some funny cartoons. And I don't care if you are 55 years old and a CEO of a major corporation, you will learn a lot about learning from these, uh, you know, very simple, but very, um, impactful, uh, ideas. So for me, though, now I, I think working on that is a passion, but also um, I, I often teach around the world about how to do effective, truly effective online learning that doesn't just make people continually drag their attention back to the screen, but actually their attention's riveted on the screen because they can't help it. You're doing this bottom-up uh, sort of compelling of attention uh, because it's just so intriguing. I love sharing information about how to create online materials that help do that. And knowing what we know about neuroscience and applying that can help make superb online materials that is in many cases far better than what's currently available we're still in the uh you know the the same era as the 1950s was for computers that's where we are now in online learning so i'm determined to do my best to help us all learn more about learning and also learn more about how to better do that online well, that's great. I can't wait for that uh, curriculum to come out, especially the the parent and teacher companion part. I've shared some of what I've uh, learned um, through your materials with my 10-year-old son. The, the Pomodoro technique is one that he uses now with, with his homework, uh, especially when it's a, a topic that he's not necessarily that motivated around. <laughs> yep. 
that's a good thing. Uh, people don't know that when you think about something you'd rather not do, it activates the pain centers of the brain. So the Pomodoro is a great way to get around that. Well, so n- next to last question, and this is um, one that uh, we like to ask all the interviewees who come on, and it focuses on your own personal learning. And so I'd like to know what is one of the most powerful learning experiences that you've been involved with as an adult since finishing your, your formal education? Oh, I think it's learning how to make online materials. Um, you know, it's kind of funny. Um, about 25 years ago, this professor I was taking was, he was, well, let's, let's, let's be charitable. He was the <laughs> worst professor I ever had. He, he was just awful. And I remember the students in class were kind of sitting around and they were, he'd boxed himself in a corner with some kind of silly uh, derivation where he'd gone off track. And they were talking about television shows. And so I, I didn't watch television. I was pretty much too busy. And there is kind of a snootiness in academia about, we, we don't watch television. And sure enough, he overheard, the teacher overheard, the professor overheard them and he wheels around and he says, television. He says, I never watch television. And uh, I I remember looking at him and going, you know, I think I better start watching television. (laughs) (laughs) And so I did. I mean, it was just a little bit. My hubby and I would sit sometimes and watch a show and kind of follow it through and, and things like that. And what I think that did was that, um, helped, kind of build in my subconscious, how do you make great video edited materials? Uh, I mean, it wasn't that I was sort of going into video blind. In some sense, I I did. I mean, it wasn't like I was some big expert, but there was something that I was gathering through all those years of just a little bit of television watching. And I think um, it's just funny. You were saying, uh, you were asking about sort of things that you've learned that can come in handy in completely different contexts. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely one of them. But I think video uh, is is really the bee's knees as far as there's going to be some great, uh, great new techniques out there. And I think instructional design uh, and uh, teaching about learning and learning online is, is where it's all at. Mm. Well, great. So, last question. If listeners want to know more about you and your work, where would you have them go? Oh, go to my website, barbaraoakley.com, and you'll see all sorts of information there about anything you might be interested in. Uh, You can learn about when I met my husband at the South Pole Station in Antarctica or working out on Soviet trawlers up in the Bering Sea where I... uh, as with many sort of Russians, uh, you know, had some some great drinking experiences <laughs> and so forth. So, uh, so anyway, there's lots there, and uh, I I just I really appreciate you having me on the show. Your your questions are so penetrating. It was a, it was wonderful to be able to explore these areas with a depth that I'm not usually able to do. Oh well, thank you so much for making time, Barb. I really appreciate it, and I really enjoyed the conversation. Oh, thank you, Salisa. That wraps up our interview with Barb Oakley. 
To get show notes for this episode, including a link to our MOOC resources page, just go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 104. While you're there, you're going to also see various options for subscribing to the podcast. And if you like what you heard today, if you're getting value out of what you hear, we would be truly grateful if you would subscribe. And as always, we'd also be truly grateful if you take a minute to give us a rating on iTunes. Just go to leadinglearning.com slash iTunes. That'll put you in the right place. We really appreciate it. It helps us know that you value the podcast, and it also helps make it easier for others to find out about the podcast and appreciate the value that it's providing. And we hope, too, that you will consider telling others about the podcast. You can do that in person, or you can send out a tweet by going to leadinglearning.com slash share. And if tweeting doesn't happen to be your thing, you can pick uh, another social network of your choice and spread the good word that way. So thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.